0: We need to have like product-led sales, meaning the product is so good that like the end users are going up to their senior people who are going to be the decision makers and pleading with them to adopt or pay or get the next tier or whatever.
1: This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve A, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform Built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curvey.com. That's Q R V E Y.com.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of SAS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Asantar Primo Komar as my guest here. And Santar is the SVP of product at Rex. It will be a great discussion or different, relatively different topic that, you know, I normally have on this podcast. So I welcome that. And I'm personally very interested to learn more as well as understand this particular model better. So Santer, please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Arman. So I... Grew up in Sri Lanka, came to the US for college. I did my undergrad at Stanford in mechanical engineering and my master's in robotics at the University of Pennsylvania. Worked for a medical robotics company for a short period of time. Learned that I'm more passionate about entrepreneurship than working for a large company. So I ended up joining an early stage ed tech company called Piazza as their third employee and was with them for about six years. Grew to become They had a product, head of engineering, and also ran sales for a short period of time. That company built software for college professors to be able to have discussion forums for their students. That grew to about 90 countries. Uh, Tens of millions of students have used it, especially for fields like engineering, computer science, uh, STEM-related classes. And once we had this big user base of students, a lot of big companies wanted to connect with those students online to be able to hire them right out of college and for internships and so on. So we ended up building a college recruiting platform called Piazza Careers, which was adopted by you know all the big, like Facebook, Microsoft, Google, and also a lot of the emerging startups like Uber, Airbnb, and so on. Then I, I left after six years. The company was doing well. It was profitable, which was very rare for tech companies. I was looking for my next challenge and came across Peter Rex, uh, the founder of Rex. He had built a multi-billion dollar property management and private equity firm that invests in real estate. He had his start when the market had crashed and bought up really good assets in both Florida and Texas. And now he was seeing how that, that field had not been impacted by technology. And as a result, how people are operating in real estate was still stuck 30 years ago. So you still needed to know someone to raise capital, needed to know someone to get a job. People are writing things on a piece of paper. Effectively, a lot of people are stuck in this rat race, unable to leverage themselves out of that, which typically you know you get through technology so we spent our first few years kind of running a lot of experiments in different problem spaces, company structures and so on, and eventually landed on Rex as a venture studio where we come up with the idea, we fund the idea, we hire the teammates to be able to run it and and support them all the way through scaling the business so Right now at Rex, we have about 10 companies that ranges from insurtech, fintech, blockchain, SaaS, consumer, big data, a very wide variety of problems. The reason we want to do that is because each of these problems on its own has a huge opportunity and is really hard to solve. And having a dedicated team just going after that niche problem makes it a much higher probability in terms of success.
2: Well, you could look at each of these companies as a product or as a, just one of the product in your portfolio and just say, rather than I have 10 companies, you could say I have 10 products and just adding them as a product. And then Rex become one company just add, you know selling 10 products. Of course, from go-to-market strategies, totally different approach when you look at these as companies rather than looking at them as product. From your perspective, probably that's one of the main questions that probably you evaluated before you make the decision to make them a company rather than product. What made you think that, no, this is better, I need to make them a a company rather than just look at them as just a product?
0: So we studied a lot of different models when it comes to studios, as well as bigger companies like Amazon, Google, uh, or Facebook, where they do have a variety of products. Now, I think there are a few different factors. One is just like our ambition. You know, we want to build a really, really massive business. And one thing we started noticing with even like a company like Amazon is like the larger you grow, a lot of your time becomes focused on convincing the government that you're not a monopoly. And the natural thing that happens when in the early stage of these companies is that one or two of these product ideas are going to find success much faster. And as a result, all of your resources gets allocated to those products, your best teammates, your best cash, and some of these other ideas ends up sort of going to the wayside or getting shut down altogether. But the companies that we picked, we we do strongly believe has a huge role to play in disrupting the real estate space. And so we wanna make sure those did come into existence. Another big aspect of it was we wanted to find really like true entrepreneurs working on these products to make them successful and make them in a multi-billion dollar companies. And it's really hard to give true entrepreneurs large upside when you have just one company, right? So if you take uh, Amazon as an example, Amazon, when they started AWS, the people working on that had Amazon stock, which is good because Amazon is doing reasonably well, you know, even in the e-commerce space, right? So you have the security of that stock, but the founding team of AWS was not going to get a large amount of Amazon shares, right? So they're still going to get employee level, maybe a little bit more than an average employee. But now if you look at Amazon's success, a lot of it is driven by AWS, but the people who are able to found that that team and run it are not going to be able to participate in that in that upside of of the success. So we wanted to be able to have that opportunity where, you know, if, if we have 10 companies, if someone comes into one of our companies, they're gonna get a meaningful stake in that business. And if they do a really, really good job with that, Regardless of how the other nine companies do, they're going to get a huge upside in in their success of their company. And that's been a pretty big attraction to a lot of the, the entrepreneurs that we've been able to attract.
2: Is it fair to say, at the same time, they are not going to take as much of a big risk as it was their own startup, and they had no support, and they had to do it? Because when they start with you, from day one, they are backed by, you know, a robust financially robust system behind that they can count on and they don't need to worry about, hey, in six months, can I pay myself any salary or I have to work for a year like many other. Is it fair to say that also provides them that kind of, so in a way, the entrepreneurs that you're looking at, they have something is the middle it's not like they start from zero with all of the risk with their own company but at the same time it's not like i'm just working as an employee and regardless of my success you know i would get the same kind of financial rewards the same
0: right it's typically not not the fit for someone who's going to just drop everything and build their own company and especially for someone who can do that and has all the the markers and abilities to build a very successful company because the reality is most companies do fail. So what we've found was there are, there are different pieces that makes like a really good entrepreneur. The biggest aspect of it is that sense of ownership or responsibility. Like They want to be able to take on the burden of building something that people like using and help scale it, right? But the reality in starting a company on your own is that there are a lot of other factors that get in the way, right? Like, especially in the first few years, you're spending the majority of your time on structuring a company, on legal, on HR, on trying to find talent. These activities have, like, tangential ways of adding value to, you know, your core offering, but it takes up a lot of lot of time, right? So where we end up finding success in, in terms of people are, I'm in that boat as well, is that, I'm not in a place in my life where I am motivated to take that sort of a personal financial risk. But I have the sense of ownership and ambition to build something that's that's great, that people love using, and is going to be scaling very quickly. So that usually ends up being someone who is like a second, third, fourth employee in a company who has... Now being in leadership roles, but has not been the person running the company, and they want that experience. They don't want to be constantly worrying about money or you know where their next hire is going to come from. Uh, they have that sort of psychological safety to be able to go take big risks, right? And that that is that is a big factor that I've seen with entrepreneurs. A lot of my friends from Stanford who ended up being fairly successful entrepreneurs, you know, come from very wealthy families and stuff where they don't have to worry about where am I going to you know pay rent like their parents are going to cover their rent <laughs> you know there they don't do worry about insurance and things like that right so having that sense of like financial security is helpful in making big bets but at the same time i think internally we try to create enough structures that create that sense of scarcity so it's not just like i have a blank checkbook i'm just going to do whatever i want we do try to constrain in terms of headcount let's hey, let's go find really really good people but not like a lot of them right let's Start with like a couple of people, and then like we can keep adding on as you clear some of these milestones. Same thing with like marketing spend, same thing with like budgets and stuff like that, that creates a little bit of a scarcity that constrains and creates more creativity out of our entrepreneurs.
2: Makes sense. So definitely, I can see how your kind of approach and your operation can be so metric oriented and data oriented and scientifically correct, because there are a lot of fine lines to work on. And that's really getting it to the level that scientifically this is the right approach, this is the way it works. And as you go further, then you can create those benchmarks and be more successful increasingly in the future based on the previous kind of experiences that you have had. Now, wearing different hats during the course of years, even you said at one point you were involved in sales and then product management and now in this company at a broader aspect getting involved also on the business side, the strategy and engineering and product management and understanding all of these aspects when you are really working on this product, also thinking about the business side of it and how it can get closer to get the customers. At the end of the day, what makes a SaaS company successful is to get a customer, not necessarily getting the funding, right? You get the funding in order to get the customers, not, you know, you get the funding and you say, success, mission accomplished, I'm done. Now I'm a unicorn or whatever, doesn't mean anything. You need to really get customers and then claim victory. And as you can get better, more customers and, you know, everything makes sense. What is really the lesson you have learned that helps you to understand this product is going to bring customers?
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing we talk about internally a lot is like the best form of funding is through your customer and not through investors, right? One of the things that we push all the teammates to do is just get in front of your customer very early, especially in this domain we are in. A lot of our customers are especially end users. So we we end up in this situation. And that's pretty typical in SaaS where like the person who's your customer or that makes the buying decision is someone different from the person who actually has to use it at the end of the day. And that's very true in this situation as well but when you talk about our end users like property managers maintenance technicians like you know vendors these people actually haven't used a lot of technology so we we have to do our part in sort of discovering on their behalf and you cannot do that if you're if you're building in a vacuum or in this ivory tower we need to keep pushing our teammates you know, everyone like designers engineers everyone to go get that empathy from from day one, go shadow them, go understand what their workflows are like. This happens in tech a little bit more where like, you know, when you're using Salesforce, you're just using Salesforce, right? But like when it comes to property management, they're like running around doing a hundred different things. So your product, you need to really understand how your product fits into their day-to-day life. So you need to like really spend time just shadowing the customer and some of the feedback. And and people think that's crazy when I tell them, especially having built software from scratch before because the first hour when you're sitting sitting around like often i tell them hey just go sit there and do your work if you if you don't have like an agenda just go sit in their office just do the work with alongside them and bring them some coffee some tacos and the first hour is very boring because you know there's not much action there's you know just like sitting around but then very quickly you understand what is going on in their day-to-day life, who's coming and talking to them. When are they actually using a software? When they're using a software, at some point they get disrupted by something else. So being able to like observe that and sort of build fast and test it out is very important. And when I say test it out, they can even test it out using prototypes. In fact, I, I uh, highly encourage our teams to do prototype level testing before we even invest building a lot of stuff because even building the simplest thing it takes time it takes maintaining that over time and you're going to do something pretty hacky that might require a lot of refactoring rewriting later so working with the customer and kind of going through the rapid iteration cycles early on is pretty important to even build that relationship with the customer i think one of the one of the articles i get everyone to read right off the bat is uh, something that uh, y combinator published back in the day it talks about do things that don't scale, right? People are saying like, hey, like I cannot talk to a lot of customers when so spending one a day with a customer, right? But it doesn't matter. Like you have to win like one customer at a time and your early customers are the ones who are going to inform you of what's important, what's not. Like is this UX work or does it not? So yeah, I, th- I think a lot of it is around like just being right there with your customer, getting a lot of feedback loops. And getting out of your comfort zone and meeting with people sometimes, I mean, especially in this case, right? Like a lot of our teammates come from very, very well-versed like tech companies and stuff, and they haven't sat down with the maintenance technician and like, you know, just hang out with them. And so there's like a new demographic of people that I'm not, not used to interacting with, but you have to push through your comfort zone and just like get in touch with your customer. And very quickly, they'll be the ones just texting you, calling you, giving you ideas, advice on what to change, what to what to improve on, and so on.
2: It's a very dynamic market, of course, right? The SaaS itself did not exist just 15 years ago that much. And then it changed the deployment, the way we just bring software to companies. The subscription model was a big change because then you as a software company are building gradually but very reliably this revenue. As long as your customers stay with you, that changes the whole culture of customer success and everything, and selling software. And one of the big and major items when we are talking about getting customers is the sales. How do you build the sales organization that fits very well into that ecosystem? And like everything else, that is also ever changing, right? So it's not like has to stay the same and we have to do sales the same way we did 20, 30 years ago in software industry. It's changing as we speak and it will continue changing. From your perspective, how do you see that changing? Where is the direction that we are taking to make sales better? Many of the things that you just said, it requires a good understanding of the product. So when you are selling it, When you're talking to customers, you need to have a very deep understanding of what you offer as part of that product so you can pitch it correctly. And if customers' needs are different, you need to reflect that back to the product team so they can adjust and finally get to the real product that customers need and make that product market fit happening. So that is different than a sales process that maybe a very established company has. And already everything is defined very well with the marketing and the playbook is there. And then you take it and pitch it exactly like that. And then you sell it at the startup world, especially in SaaS world. How do you think sales can be really helpful? And is it should be a person on the sales in charge of sales that is really grew, a product grew? person that knows the product very well, or from your perspective, no, actually sales has its own challenges. It's a totally different world. I'm not really asking sales to know the product, but always I want sales to have someone on the product next to them and then help them to do that. The traditional kind of sales engineer plus sales, you know, coupling them and then moving forward. Um, Very interested to understand your take, you know, what do you think and based on what you have seen the way that you think the future would be also
0: the whole notion of SAS itself is just like a optimization when it comes in, in terms of selling efficiently, right? So back in the day, even like 10, 15 years ago, a lot of it's like, you know, you have like these bigger companies, the software they've built is not necessarily very user-friendly, but it turns out some sales guy made a compelling pitch to someone and they like Bought it. Now they're stuck with it. Like so often, it's like multi-year deals, so you're kind of stuck with it, right? But now I think that trend is changing. And one of the things that I, I really evangelize with our teams is that we need to have like product-led sales, right? Meaning, the product is is so good that like the end users are going up to their senior people who are going to be the decision makers and pleading with them to adopt or pay or get the next tier or whatever. And we already see a lot of that. Here, I think Slack is a great example. On the last company when we used it, Slack was still pretty new. A team of people started using it, and they would come in and say, hey, "Man, can you pay for this?" I was like, "Why? What's wrong with the free version?" They will give you the compelling argument for why we should pay for it, right? And then, and then the roles of the salesperson becomes more around like education, like sales enablement, and making like you know the funnel of conversion is not is not that that friction. Right. So now I do think there is, you know, as as someone who's run like a sales, like enterprise sales team as well, there is definitely it's a it's a very numbers-driven thing, and there are certain best practices and how you, you can sell better. But the products that people just generally like using just sells much faster and much easier, right? So I think a big trend that's happening right now is that instead of thinking of like SaaS products as like it can be ugly, it can be like hard to use. But as long as you make the sale we're good to go I think there's a, a bigger focus on making even those products feel very consumer friendly I would say there's like a lot more attention to detail in terms of design and UX and stuff like that so that's something that we push for from from day one I'm like really nailing that that UX and UI and making it extremely like uh, friendly from an end user standpoint
2: now from your perspective, if you know you wanted to come up with a new product today or a new company the way you guys do it. And then you need to have someone to really take that vision and that product and make that business successful. Would you first start finding the person who can do it and then building the business around that person? Or would you find first the concept and product and then you will search for the person that can take it and move forward?
0: When you have 10 companies, it, there is like a mixture of, you know, different angles. But I would say typically we we would have found a problem ourselves. And often, at least in this 10 that we have picked, they were screaming pains, right? Like Things like just go talk to one of our... So we have a property management company. And if you can go talk to some of those stakeholders, property managers, reason managers, and ask them, hey, what are, what are you struggling with? What is some software you're using right now? It's not serving you well that we can, you know, replace it with our product of our own or where is there a space there's like an unmet need that we can kind of build and bridge that gap we'll get like a list of 50 company ideas and then we have to figure out how to like narrow it down to the 10 that we want to go with right every time we do this exercise there's like a million different ideas that come through and then given our domain expertise in in real estate we can sort of like think through like which of these problems have uh, like the highest opportunity in terms of a massive company we can build? There's not just a problem that we have in our property management company, but it's like as a wider ranging reach. Is this Is something that can eventually maybe even branch out outside of real estate or, or property management into like commercial or any other, any other spaces? So we try to do a lot of, as I was saying, like something like a, like what Amazon does, uh, they have the have process called the PRFAQ where they do a lot of deep vetting, assuming they're already built this business, right? So you're asking a lot of really tough questions around the TAM, Samsung, and like, uh, what are some risks you're going to have? What sort of like capital you need for it? And you do a lot of like the early vetting of the idea and how we can actually go after it. But then we typically end up finding maybe two, three, uh, fairly entrepreneurial tend to be on the younger side, Entrepreneurs who can go in there and just go through the motions of like testing out where okay, So we know the, the broad idea, but where is the right entry point where we can build something and get in there within like two to four weeks and have a product in market and then expand from there?
2: So not sure if this metaphor that I'm going to use is the best or not, but hopefully it will turn out to be okay. So bear with me for a minute. So think of Airbnb. When they started, they said, hey, you can really rent your house. And then people started, individuals, you know, house owners, listing their property and say, hey, this is really, we are going to, you know, list our house and property and bring some guests. Over time, then there were some super hosts and they started really having some collection of properties and sometimes they actually built it or bought it just for that very purpose. And then they had unfair advantage. They had much better understanding of which properties are best for renting through Airbnb, how Airbnb works, and a lot of other things. And they maximized essentially their profit and even providing better experience to guests maybe coming to them because that was more reliable kind of experience that they could provide. Do you see SaaS market going to the same direction as you are taking, meaning that, you know, you have unfair advantage over SaaS companies that starting in your domain and just by themselves and the entrepreneur wants to get everything done by himself and understand everything, learn it at the same time, fund it at the same time, do all of the things that he or she should do and then take all of the risk versus you guys, come to that domain well equipped with some work done in advance, some research, some customer base, some financial backing, and if that's the case, probably that should be the future of SaaS companies that we should expect in 10, 20 years from now, actually, you know, super SaaS model will take over and individual SaaS companies, maybe not that kind of, you know, a preferred model anymore.
0: No, a couple of things, you know, one of, one of my favorite books is like zero to one, right? And like a big part of that is making sure you find a space you can start with like a very, very tiny space where you can be a monopoly in what you do there, right? And then you can keep growing uh, because once you conquer that, like the adjacent areas, you have a competitive advantage to grow into those areas. And like your Airbnb example, that's what they did, right? But the key thing there is that you need to like start somewhere that's very narrow. The typical thing I've seen with like, you know, how people fail, whether it's SAS or not, is they try to go after something too broad and too big it's too much. There's too many competitors. You're not differentiated. It's it's impossible for you to compete with even like a mid-sized company, right? But in terms of the competitive advantage in our particular setup that we've seen, and to your point, I think it could be a model that other industries also adopt or entrepreneurs in other industries could think of adopting, is that in real estate, if you just pick real estate, there's a lot of efficiencies that come through having multiple companies in that same space, right? First of all, you do have a lot of domain knowledge, which is which is really hard to get, which is why even like VCs end up focusing on certain domains or they would have certain partners, a few partners focusing on very specific domain-related investment related investments. But in our case, right, and this is true in SaaS companies, is, is really hard finding your first customer. You spend a lot of time trying to convince some one person to take all the risk in adopting your tool. And that's a huge, huge ask. Even if, if you know someone, if like a friend of mine comes and tells me, hey, man, you want to use this in your company? Like I would have to think really, really hard before saying yes. And I'll say it's very rare i will going to say yes, right? It's like, it's a big hurdle, especially given like how important that SaaS product is to your day-to-day operation, right? So it's a, it's a big hurdle to get your first customer. Now let's say you do get your first customer there's another hurdle to get your first large customer, like an enterprise-level customer who's paying you like a $100,000 check, right? And one of the advantages we have is that since we have these customers in-house, we are able to just get that first customer on day one. We just say, hey, here's what we're doing. Are you going to work with us? All right, cool. And it's all part of the same ecosystem, so they help each other out, right? Now, there there are benefits of being an, like a lighthouse customer, early customers, because you get the 100% of attention of the team. You know, if there's something broken, it's fixed like immediately, right? Because that's the other thing I tell early teams is like, hey, like, don't worry about all these like future states. Just think of this person as the only person you're building for and just try to nail it for them. Because you might think that we're being a little too like narrow, but the reality is if that it works really well for that person. It's going to work really well for hundreds of other people because there are tons of people like that person in the market right? So we, we're able to get our first like one or two properties using our product and getting feedback and so on. Now once it's working, it's so easy for us to expand it to, we have about 70 properties. We can expand it to all of our properties very fast, which now gets you your first large enterprise customer within months. This, even my last company, takes you two, three years before you get to that sort of stage. Right? As a result, you need to raise a lot of capital to get there and stuff. So we are able to get to that faster, which means these companies can get to like a series A, series B much quicker because they can show that traction fairly early on. And that is, again, one of the things that's attractive to these entrepreneurs who are on that on that like uh, edge being like, should I go start my own company or should I come here
2: to Rex and be an entrepreneur? What you name it, Venture Studio. Let's say I wanted to start a venture a studio in a domain. I just pick a domain, fintech or something else, and I say I want to create a venture studio there. How do you define that entity? What would you say, hey, Arma, pay attention to these top three points. Those are the things that you need to really understand before you do it.
0: Yeah, so I would say definitely either you having it or you know having partners or people who have that domain knowledge is going to be helpful just in terms of like intuition. and like making choices, but additionally, you probably want some partnership, either you have it in house. In our case we do, or you have connection to a couple of banks or you know, VPs at banks who are willing to test out your products in their, in their companies to solve for the two things that I mentioned in terms of having that first customer, but also having the first large customer now, I think there's going to be some upfront investment that you need to make, right? Which doesn't pay off until you have some level of scale, right? Because we're gonna, we ended up having to hire like recruiters early on, some HR people, uh, some technical leaders. Like, you know, we have a head of engineering, head of architecture, head of design, head of data. We have like a few of those roles in place. I mean, we, which we got over time, but you need some experts in place so you can take some of these bets, right? Because the early teams are gonna be fairly junior, pretty inexperienced. You need the right partners. I think like in our case, we were able to find a really good offshore partner who was able to like staff our teams with engineers, like really high quality, relatively inexpensive engineers. And the value that we got for for the engineering like capability for how much we paid was incredible. So, so you need to like think through how to structure all of that. How do you structure like, each company versus your your venture studio. There's a lot of like legal stuff that we need to think through and went back and forth on. So there's a little bit of a like a setup cost, I would say, in figuring out what is the minimum viable pieces you need to get this going. In our case, to be able to like you know fund all of that, it made sense to start off with like ten companies. So we launched like a bunch of them at a, at a time. I think going forward. We won't have that pressure, so we can launch a, a single company, or two companies, three companies at a time. There are pieces that goes behind it. One another benefit that we have is our CEO Pete. You know, he has a, a really good financial standing, and that that I've seen to be a common trend as well with some of these other venture studios like Atomic and stuff, where you have uh, someone who's already been very successful, so they already have their own capital that they can bring to the table, or they're connected to other really ultra hand network or VCs or whatever who can, you know, help you with capital raising pretty quickly once you once you need that.
2: It makes sense. So these are kind of the pillars and the different kind of I would say elements that help you to build that infrastructure to have a very successful kind of venture studio. And that helps you when even you're starting from day one, from some aspects you you are not like a day one company, you are actually, you have the infrastructure, the foundation to move much faster. Back to the point that you are now with the product and you have, you know, had this experience with all of these 10 companies and everything. I wonder from your perspective, how does it work if, for example, you know, you wanted to add the, for example, 11th company into the mix compared to the first one you added? What lessons you learned that helps you to say, okay, the 11th company is totally different experience than when I added the first company because I learned this. This is the top lesson I learned. This is the most important lesson amongst everything else. I know that there will be zillions of things. Probably you can write a book at this point about it, but what is that kind of one thing to highlight that in your mind sticks out and say, you know, if I had to pick one thing that I definitely... Would do and have done differently now compared to what I did at the very first. This is the one thing that we did differently or we do differently now. I would say
0: think through strategy and validate some of the entry point strategy and stuff with customers early on, doing some mock ups, showing to them. Like we sort of pushed that even at the beginning, but I think like the mechanics of actually how to execute that idea. We ended up landing on it after three, four, five iterations. How do you get to a place where before you even build anything, just sign a contract, like a customer signs a contract saying, if you build this for me by this date, I'll pay you this. And that now gives you like a real target for the team to hit. Whereas some of the earlier companies are still, you know, kind of building stuff, like kind of talking to customers it was, it was iterative. I would say, I wouldn't say it was any slower than your average startup, but We've learned that, first of all, you can do a lot with less resources. The bigger the team is, you just sort of marshal the entire team to do all of this. Uh, but if you have like a couple of people, things move much faster. But also, the speed at which you can iterate is much quicker when you have fewer people. But also, just pushing the teams to go talk to more customers. Early on, when I say it, it's, it could only take like a week or two, uh, within which you'll figure out exactly what you need to be able to do, but doing that hard work versus giving into this this need to be like, oh, let me just like build something. That's that's where a lot of entrepreneurs want to do. They want to build stuff. But often when you do the upfront thinking, you might realize, hey, I could actually do a proof of concept or MVP or test this with just hacking together this tool and this tool and this tool and this tool and, and it will kind of do the trick, right? I can get the customer, I can satisfy the customer's needs and then I can build my software around it or in the gaps that's that there is actually like an unmet need.
2: Has been any case that actually you didn't build any software. It was just at best something in Envision or some prototyping tools that you could actually showcase the concept and the vision. And the vision was so powerful that immediately you got the commitment that you wanted from at least one, maybe some early customers. And they said, We are sold on this vision. We know it's not a product yet but you have our commitment, even this is the prepayment and you have us as a customer, just go and build it. Have been any case like that?
0: We did have a few, I would say the most compelling one, which ended up being more like a 15 minute conversation, I would say in terms of sales pitch was, so we have a product called PayUp. The problem they're solving is a sort of like floating capital, early payments type problem, right? So a lot of vendors come in, do like say a paint job, or clean job, at a property management company, those property management companies pay in 30 days. A lot of these vendors need to get paid like in two days, three days, seven days to put food on the table. Now, by having that net 30 requirement, the property management companies also reduce a pool of people who can do, do work. And because of that requirement, you're, you're working with very professionalized vendors who also have... You know higher markups, and you know they charge you more for for those services. So this company PayUp, what they did was they said, you know what, we'll build into your own flows. So if you have like an invoicing system or whatever, we can hook into that. And we, if anyone wants to get paid early, we will let them go through the sign up flow, do some KYC, some verification, and they can pick their terms in which they want to get paid. And so we will pay them in those terms we'll take like a small cash discount for that service that we're providing and then we will collect the money from you in 30 days or you know whatever time period that they pay in right whatever money that we make from that transaction will will kick, kick back like 10% as you know fees right back to the back to the firm and this was you know to them it opens up their pool of vendors, they don't have to worry about all these payments and all these vendors constantly pinging you about, hey, when am I getting paid? Like, it's an app. They can clearly see payments triggered, payments in there or whatever. But also, it's, like, found money for them. You know, there's, like, a new source of revenue. And th- this is, like, I'm talking, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue for them because they're doing, you know, 10, 20, 30 million in, like, vendor payments every year, right? If you're a big enough of a property management company, you're doing large amount of payment. And even, like, you know, margins on those, it's, it's incredible. And people want to get paid in seven days, right? And they're willing to take, like, 2 3% on that window, which annualizes, like, 30%, 40%. So it's, like, a, it's a great business. And, yeah, that, that was, you know, I remember talking to the CEO of the property management company, and he was like, yep, this sounds good, just sign me up. And the team also, you know, did a really good job with the designs and all that stuff, and, and we sort of tested it out with the vendor side to make sure we knew the experience for the vendor to be able to sign up and stuff is not confusing and cumbersome, it doesn't change behavior too much. Honestly, it's great because once they set the defaults in their in the invoicing system, they all they do is just keep uploading invoices and we just get paid on the on that timeline, right? So that was like a very easy sell to customers.
2: Perfect. So this has been a great discussion and I would like to ask you my last question about a book or podcast or blog post whatever that has been impactful in what you do and you would like to perhaps share with the audience
0: of course i probably mentioned a couple of them during the the talks those are the two that i usually highlight one's called 0 to 1 it talks about you know how do you build early stage companies and another one's a yc blog post called uh, do things that don't scale the thing i like about the, those they, they have such contrarian views what people think goes into building early stage companies. It's almost the opposite of whatever your instinct is. Every time I get like my teammates read it, they're like, oh wow, I didn't I, I didn't realize I should do that. And and a good example for especially from doing things that don't scale was is an Airbnb example where Airbnb was the founders that put up all these in a few of these units up there and they were like, why am I not getting in bookings? And then they look look at the the bookings and it looks like all these photos don't look very good. Right. So so they said, you know what, let's go take some nice photos. They took their nice DSLRs and take like high quality pictures. And then instantly people started booking it, right? Because it looks really nice. Now everyone's like, man, like, how are we going to scale that? Are you going to go around taking photos? They're like, no, we'll figure it out. Turns out once you kind of set the bar for this is what photos should look like, people who want to make a lot of money on Airbnb are going to invest taking good photos. And, and then it also became like a sort of a sub... Job type for a lot of photographers uh, who offer these like Airbnb photo packages, right? That you can hire them for like a few hundred dollars, and they'll come. They know exactly what photos need to be taken. So, so I think people sometimes like, especially early teams, over-index on trying to find the most scalable ways to build something off the bat. But in reality, you want to be comfortable doing a lot of non-linear, non-scalable stuff to get going, and then learn like what works, and then you find the scalable version of that solution.
2: Fantastic. It was a great discussion. Thanks again for joining us. Hope to see you again and follow up on the progress you are you guys are making. Very, very exciting.
0: Of course. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I had a great
2: time.
1: Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sassscaled.com if you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve a, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.